Podcast, and I do appreciate all of the emails and uh, contact I've had from folks uh, with suggestions, suggested guests, some other things, and just some feedback on some of our other guests. Really enjoyed all the folks that I've had on here so far and hope to continue this podcast. We're continuing to go through a series of, of learning curves on some new technology and some actually new hardware in it as well. So do appreciate everyone's patience and some of the people we've had lined up we've had to postpone. But uh, look forward to all the folks coming on here in the weeks ahead. This week, uh, I had an opportunity to talk to Alan Bean. No, not the astronaut, although he did live in Texas. Alan Bean, I first became aware of uh, in a column he wrote about N.T. Wright's new book, The Day the Revolution Began, which is an astounding column. If you, if you really want to read a good piece about a great book, uh, you can check it out. Just go to Google and, and Google Alan Bean and N.T. Wright, and that'll show up. You'll, you'll be able to find that column. He did a really good job summarizing the book. And I appreciated that. So I started looking into his background, and I saw that he was ahead of Friends of Justice. And so when I um, uh, realized what the, the the Friends for Justice, Friends of Justice, has been doing, I was astounded to see how much uh, they had done in working, reaching out as a grassroots agency and to do tremendous civil rights advocacy, working in the legal community and the mass media and the political establishment to really try to get justice for folks who don't have a voice. For people who are, uh, for whatever either either economically or as we you know you can look at the national statistics and see the disproportionate number of, of minorities, uh, people of color who are incarcerated and uh, for crimes many times uh, punished much more harshly than than whites for the same crimes, and even some people who are falsely accused and don't really have anybody to stand up for him. And that's where Alan Bean, his organization, has stepped in. They've helped a number of people. Um, they're working on a case uh, right now of, of a Mississippi native named Curtis Flowers, who was accused. We'll talk a little bit about that in the podcast. But um, there's going to be a Stars uh, movie channel special about that case. So look forward to seeing that. Anyway, Alan Bean, fascinating uh, man. I enjoyed talking to him, a native of Canada. Uh, he's been extensively quoted. You may have read about him before. Newsweek, Washington Post, USA Today, Chicago Tribune, has been on CNN. And his works, uh, work with Friends of Justice has been featured all over the place. And we really appreciate that uh, his commitment to, in, in the words of the Bible, the least of these and what it takes to do that. He has to, he has to work a full-time job because nobody's going to pay you to stand up for folks who who can't take care of their own legal cost and their own... Uh, things like that. So I really appreciate all that Alan does as executive director of Friends of Justice and all the things he does. So um, hope we enjoy. hope you enjoy listening to our interview. Well, let's start with that. Um, tell me a little bit about Friends for Justice. How did you get involved? You founded the organization, I'm thinking. Yeah, well, Friends of Justice started in uh, 1999, um, and it was, a, it was an ad hoc um, organization at first. We came together in response to kind of a crisis in our community that was a massive drug bust, a town of 5,000 people, uh, 47 folks were arrested. And all of these um, alleged crimes were based on the uncorroborated word of, <clears throat> excuse me, one undercover cop. And um, that bothered me for a couple of reasons. For one thing, we quickly discovered that almost all of the defendants 
were um, African-American. And if they weren't, they usually had a, a boyfriend who was. Um, and secondly, uh, not knowing very much about the criminal justice system at the time, uh, it bothered me that there was only one witness. And I, I knew the biblical teaching that you couldn't really convict anybody biblically except on uh, the testimony of two witnesses. Um, and, um, and I also thought about the way that, that Jesus had been uh, railroaded, and it struck me that there was some potential for that. I also knew my, uh, you know, the, a lot of the folks in the town, and, and white people sort of assumed that I agreed with them, and so I knew that there was um, a lot of racial bias in the community. So all of those things came together, and, and we got a little suspicious, started poking around, talked to some lawyers, and it soon became clear uh, that this undercover agent was completely disreputable. He had been fired from a number of law enforcement positions, had left uh, his last law enforcement position, um, basically had been run out of town, uh, owing local merchants $10,000 in debt, and um, he had been arrested by the sheriff of that county. Um, because he was charged with, with theft. He had left town putting um, county gas into his own vehicle, a uh, private vehicle, and that technically was theft. And so they, they kind of used that to, to get him to pay back the $10,000 to the local merchants. Um, and he went down to this other community and settled that problem, came back to Tulia, and the sheriff put him back on the street. He was undercover for about 18 months in this little town um, without asking him what he had been charged with, how it had been cleared up, none of that. He just, just put him back on the street. And so the worse, the more we dug, the worse it started looking. And we started talking to the defendants and their families, those who were still in the free world, and uh, started writing letters to the folks that were locked up and getting letters back. And then we started meeting every Sunday night in uh, our own home, the Bean Home. And um, it just sort of one thing led to another. Uh, we didn't choose the name Friends of Justice until we finally got some, some media contact and uh, people started asking, well, what, what's the name of your organization? So we just dreamed one up on the spot and Friends of Justice sort of stuck. Well, what, what were you doing? I mean, what, what were you doing in Tulia at the time? I mean, what was your job? And Yeah, well, I had been uh, pastoring first a Baptist church and then a Methodist church up in um, just around the Wichita, Kansas area. Uh, my, my wife, um, who is from Tulia in the Texas Panhandle, her parents um, were retiring and going to be moving back there. So she wanted to move down there and be with her people. She was tired of roaming around North America the way we had. I'm from Canada, and uh, she went up there with me for six years and then uh, went to Wyoming and back to seminary to get a doctorate and then out to Kansas. And she thought it was time uh, to be close to her folks. So we moved down to Tulia, and I had been doing uh, interim pastorates uh, in Methodist churches primarily and um, was working on a, a book that I never ended up publishing, a novel, um, and she was teaching school. So that's what we were doing there. Okay, now tell me a little more about your background. You said you were your pastor for a while. Where did you go to seminary? I went to uh, seminary at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Uh, hey, I'm, got a, my, I'm a Southern, uh, Southern alumni myself, so 
I know that. What what years did you go? I was there. I left finished there in eighty two. Okay, so so we may have overlapped. I was there. Uh, I graduated in seventy eight, but my wife didn't graduate until eighty. Okay, yeah, uh, I was at Golden Gate and then came to Southern after Golden Gate. So yeah, and then we uh, came back in eighty nine to work on my doctorate, and I didn't get that until ninety four. Of course, by that time. The seminary had been was being in the process of being taken over by the, the fundamentalist fringe, Al Mohler and his friends, and um, so that was a very tense time, um, and it, it's hard to exaggerate just how broken up that community was. Everybody was totally distracted and fearful, and it was especially those who had grown up in the Southern Baptist Convention. It was almost like their mother was kicking them out of the house. Um, and um, trauma is probably the best the best word to describe what was going on. Particularly the drift to Calvinism, which would have, I mean, some of the old stalwarts of the Baptist Convention would have rolled over in their grave if they could. Uh, yeah. Well, if you go back far enough, a lot of the founders of Southern Seminary um, had gone to Princeton and picked up some Calvinism. Yeah, that's true. And so boys and those guys. And uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on W.O. Carver, who was a professor of missions and world religions, very progressive in his own way. I mean, within the confines of the Southern Baptist Convention, he was very ecumenical and probably a universalist. One of his students told me that. Um, and so... Um, but, but the more I read him, the, the, the older he got, the more difficult to understand, the more his, his academic rhetoric devolved into baffle gab. I mean, he was just using very, very indistinct terminology. And the reason he did that is because he didn't want to nail anything down for fear of being pilloried, especially in the, the Baptist press in places like Texas. And so he just settled for being vague and evasive. And that struck me as a real tragedy because he had a tremendous amount to contribute. Well, it's like when, uh, I don't remember who they ended up getting to do it. They, they tried to get Calvin Miller to paint over the cigar in D.B. Miller's hand at Southwestern on his <laughs> official portrait, and he said he wasn't going to do it, <laughs> trying to revise the history of that. Um, yeah. what, so, what, uh, what got you from Canada to the uh, Southern Baptist? I mean, did you were you Southern Baptist growing up in Canada? Well, no, I wasn't. Uh, we had the Baptist Union of Western Canada, uh, which was part of the Canadian, what was then called the Baptist Canadian Baptist Federation. Um, they've chosen new names for everything now. But um, my pastor at the time was a guy named Richard Darling, and he was a Southern grad. He was also a Baylor grad. He was from East Texas, and he thought I really ought to go there. And um, he said, you know, they carry the academic torch for the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and uh, that's where you ought to go. And also, several of my friends, uh, when I came out of high school, I went to a little school called the Baptist Leadership Training School in Calgary, Alberta. Um, and it is now defunct. Uh, but it was, this was that during the Jesus People era, and so it, it was kind of, there was a, an upsurge of interest in this Bible school uh, the year after us, they had even more students, and uh, it was a a wonderful experience. Um, we were there just just for a calendar year, and a lot of the guys, after they finished going to uh, 
university, and many of us went to the University of Alberta in Edmonton, uh, were intending to go into into the ministry, and the Canadian seminaries, McMaster and, and Acadia out in the Maritimes, were just as far away geographically and cost a lot more. So a lot of us went down to Southern, and uh, as you know, back in the day, um, you could get a very good education there for very little, uh, and so it didn't break the bank, and that, that had a lot to do with it as well. But it, it really was culture shock coming down from uh, from Canada to, to Louisville, and it wasn't just the fact that it was 95 degrees and 95% humidity when we arrived. <laughs> it uh, How... Did you have a a, a a real heart for social justice even then, or did it begin to develop later, or have you always had that sort in your ministry had that sort of uh, sort of passion? Yeah, well, I kind of I kind of picked that up. Um, I grew up in a little town called Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories on the the shores of Great Slave Lake, about a thousand miles due north of Edmonton, um, or fourteen hundred miles north of the Montana border. If give you some idea how isolated wow. it was. And um, I remember my father uh, grew up in a town called Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Uh, Weyburn was a, just just north of the uh, North Dakota border. And uh, his Sunday school teacher, when he was a kid back at Calvary Baptist uh, Church in Weyburn, was a guy named Tommy Douglas. Uh, Tommy Douglas had been to uh, the University of Chicago during the re- during the Depression and picked up a, a degree, a master's degree in sociology there. Uh, those were that was the heyday of the the social gospel, and uh, he came back and started organizing the farmers as a pastor. Um, when the banks tried to foreclose on somebody, he'd get all the farmers together and only one guy would bid, and he'd bid one dollar, and then he'd sell send the fa- sell the farm back to the original owner. And so the banks had to negotiate. He was very effective at doing that. Unfortunately, my denomination, the Baptist Union of Western Canada, uh, told Tommy Douglas that he had to pick a lane. He could be a politician or a preacher, but not both. So he decided to go into politics. He became uh, an MLA, member of Legislative Assembly, which is sort of like um, being in the state house here. And then uh, he ran for for premier, which is the equivalent of governorship here, and he was successful. Uh, he was a socialist, called himself a socialist, uh, unapologetically, and he brought in Medicare for the province of Saskatchewan, and then his model, Tommy Douglas's model, um, spread across the country, and in 1962, the whole Canadian uh, country adopted uh, Tommy Douglas-style Medicare. Uh, there was a vote. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation took a vote at the end uh, in 2000, uh, the greatest man of the century, and Tommy Douglas won that vote. So even though he was a little too radical to ever s- succeed at the national level, um, he he was very, very influential, and his social gospelism had a big impact on my daddy. I remember listening to my father talk about Tommy Douglas, and then he'd go down into the basement to polish everybody's shoes for church the next morning, and he'd turn on Billy Graham and listen to him. My dad sort of had both of those, you know, that, <laughs> that old-style old uh, Billy Graham evangelism and um, this social gospel uh, side of him as well, 
Uh, and I picked up both of those, and I, but I was more attracted to, to the social gospel. And when we came down from Yellowknife to Edmonton in 1964, I was 11 years old, and the civil rights movement was in full swing. Um, John, uh, John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated, uh, and the Civil Rights Act and the, the Voting Rights Act were both passed. And so there were all these images of the civil rights movement on the television, and that really grabbed me. And I thought, you know, that's what real Christianity looks like. And I can remember when we came down to Southern, after, my, after I had graduated, I, I, I got a job driving a delivery truck for a coffin and casket company. And I'd deliver caskets and coffins to these uh, funeral homes throughout rural Indiana and Kentucky. And I remember uh, I'd listened to these little cassette tapes as I was driving and I remember listening to uh, a cassette of Martin Luther King, and um, the first side of the tape was was sort of letter from the Birmingham jail, you know, very reasoned, very um, uh, polemical, uh, academic, um, and uh, logical thinking, very theological. But then I flipped over the tape, and he was in there. There were they were having a meeting. Um, and uh, people were, were answering back, you know, the call and response was going, the organ was playing in the background, and he was in full flight. And I just started to weep. And I had to pull my truck off to the side of the road. And I, I, was, I couldn't even see I was crying so much. And if, if you know me, uh, you'd know that I am not an emotional guy whatsoever. But that, that um, civil rights spirituality, that blending of a very biblical theology with um, a very practical, justice-oriented activism really, really appealed to me. And um, and so I, I remember when I came down to Southern, I was talking to one of these guys from the, the Deep South, and he said, I want to preach so bad I can taste it. Uh, and the, the, the game these guys would play, the preacher boys, was who's your favorite preacher? And, of course, they, they all knew this vast array of Southern Baptist preachers. That <laughs> I, I had no clue who these guys were. And I said, probably uh, Martin Luther King. And he just his jaw dropped, and he looked at me, and he's, he waited for a minute, and he said, he was kind of a communist, wasn't he? <laughs> oh, and I realized I wasn't in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, there was a big – there was a – quite a, a gap between a lot of the professors that I liked. Uh, Frank Stagg, I took all his courses. Frank Tupper uh, for theology. Um, Glenn Stassen was there at the time teaching ethics. And, you know, you really could get a very good education if you chose your professors wisely. But if you wanted to go a more conservative route, they had a professor for that as well. You know, as you know, there were five or six professors in each of the major disciplines. Right. And, and they were right across the spectrum. Well, even then, though, I mean, there there didn't seem to be uh, at least, and I had friends at, at Southwestern. Those are the three I can sort of speak of pretty, Golden Gate. So, although Golden Gate had a little bit more of a social push just because of where it was. Right, right. Uh, but, I, you know, you're right. There were professors who certainly worked that into part of what they were teaching in a, in a more academic way. But there weren't a lot of firebrands. No, and, um, no, and everybody learned. How, I mean, I can still remember uh, professors saying, "Now, uh, this is the way it is." Um, but you, if you really want to understand what Paul is saying, or, or uh, this is what the Bible is re really saying, but uh, I wouldn't tell that to your people. You know that that's just for you. 
um, <laughs> just to keep you sane, you know. Right. And, and I thought, that is really tragic. My, my father-in-law, who attended Southern back in the 60s, uh, Charles Kiker, he, had a, he has a, a doctorate in Hebrew Bible. Uh, but he, he told me that uh, one of the professors uh, for the PhD students in theology, he took them into one of the rooms on the second floor there of the academic wing, uh, or actually it was on the first floor, um, and they sort of huddled in colloquy, and he, he was going to talk to them about Rudolf Bultmann, um, and this was not something he would say in, in you know to the, to the regular students in the open classroom. Uh, but he was going to talk about Rudolf Boltmann and, and Grady Nutt, who was a student at the time, <laughs> wow. fashioned this sign uh, and, and went to the, upper, up to, the, to the room upstairs immediately above this classroom and lowered this sign down so it was dangling outside the window. And it read, uh, Rudolf B. is okay with me. Signed, <laughs> man upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a great Grady Nutt story. That is terrific. <laughs> Yeah, um, and Grady and I, we, we went to uh, Crescent Hill Baptist Church, and uh, I got to know him a little bit, and uh, his wife danced at our wedding and with uh, the uh, Crescent Hill Creative Movement Ensemble. They couldn't call it creative, they couldn't call it uh, dance, it had to be creative. You know. uh, so you really got this weird mix of progressive, very sophisticated culture with... Um, extreme caution. They were always watching their back. They were always vulnerable because, as you know, uh, so many uh, prominent Southern Baptist professors had lost their jobs just by saying the wrong thing, um, um, not phrasing things carefully. And so that was sort of the downside of getting a, an education at Southern is that you had to figure a lot of this stuff out for yourself. And by the time I got there, there actually were uh uh, coercive trying to bribe you to tape professors classes and stuff as if those of us from that generation didn't know what they did to the revolutionaries after the revolution <laughs> I mean, yeah but they really were trying to pay students to tape certain professors and send them these cassettes and stuff it was really and you know yeah. I, and you mentioned jesus movement i came out of the jesus movement i grew up with a dad on staff and kind of ran away from it because i just got sick of it and then the jesus movement sort of and I was used to the streets and the social and the seeing people healed and looking, mm -hmm. looking out for people. And then it was sort of running head on into that at seminary where that didn't seem to be much of a priority anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I can remember during the Jesus uh, at at uh, the Baptist Leadership Training School, several of the students, uh, like there was one young woman who had been at Baylor for a year and then had come back. And uh, she was really into the Jesus People movement. They, you know, had the granny gowns going, and and uh, we'd have little um, four or five of us would get together and pray, and you know, some would start to speak in tongues and what have you. And this really bothered our our principal. Uh, so I think there are a lot of people who I roughly would categorize as post-evangelical, um, who really cannot feel at home in. Um, evangelicalism, but they really, some, you know, become Anglicans, um, or or they might even be attracted to Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. um, Jack Sparks some, and Frankie Schaefer, a lot of those people went Eastern Orthodox. I mean, they, that's sort of, right. some of the Jesus movement folks ended up up over there. Right. And some end up United Methodists, Presbyterians, what have you. Um, but a lot of folks just, they don't 
they don't want to go back to evangelicalism, and yet evangelicalism it is, has introduced them to a passion and a seriousness and a love for the Bible and a love for Jesus that they don't necessarily find in mainline Christianity. And so it's like they're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. And I think there are there are thousands of seminary-educated folks floating around the countryside. They're not, not, not that you have to have gone to seminary to be in that camp, but a lot of folks who are. And many of these people, like myself, uh, have tried to be a pastor in conventional churches. And um, sometimes that has related or resulted in a lot of trauma and brokenness. Sometimes it's just been frustrating. You know, you just always had to be self-censoring and you couldn't really pursue um, the biblical vision that, that spoke to you personally in a wholehearted way. Uh, but it, it just hasn't worked very well. Um, my question is, though, how, how can you move beyond um, the kind of organized religion that seems to be viable from a marketing standpoint or, or from a, an economic standpoint? In other words, putting enough butts in the seat to pay a pastor and keep the lights on. Um, how, how can you start a church? Or it, it, let, me, let me back up a minute. Um, you can try to take an existing church and sort of move it gradually in a more kingdom of God-centered, Jesus-focused direction. But it's very difficult to do because, as you know, um, American Christianity, American evangelicalism, um, sort of the default mode is this, what Marcus Borg calls heaven-hell Christianity. And um, where where the big decision is, are you going to heaven when you die or are you going to hell? And the big decision is whether you pray the sinner's prayer and give your heart to Jesus uh, or not. Now, discipleship in this model is important and sanctification and, and growing in faith and, you know, all of that stuff. But it doesn't really matter ultimately. I mean... All that really matters is that you say the sinner's prayer and mean it, and then you're in, and you're going to heaven. You're not going to hell. And this is uh, still the this is still like you're saying the thread that runs through. I, I looked recently at the top twenty largest churches in the, in the country, the mega churches, the flat screen yeah. movement, and all that. Almost all of them, while they're and, you know, and I want to preface this by saying I know a lot of them are given a lot of money trying to do a lot of good things, but at the core of the message, it's very there's very little difference between that and a Southern Baptist pew in 1955. It is this is this fetish about hell, and while they talk about taking the Bible seriously, uh, they don't they don't think take the reconciliation the who God's side is on the side of the the delineation of Jesus in Matthew 25 of who he really thinks are the people following him. It, it, it's it's sort of a choice of this heaven and hell. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about the the article you wrote about uh, N.T. Wright's newest book about. You know, he kind of gets into the idea that the whole ransom theory of atonement thing sort of popped up late. It was not something that would have been at home in the first, you know, 1,100 years of the church. No, and he thinks it's a complete misreading of what Paul was saying. Right. He takes the Bible uh, more seriously than taking And I don't remember who said this, and I, I've, I've quoted this on this. Uh, I don't know who said it first, but I know the guy who said it three times on this podcast was Jay Baker. But he said the only people he had met who believe the Bible is literal are fundamentalists and atheists. That's right. That's right. And it, it bothers people, uh, the new atheists in particular. 
if you don't subscribe to a literal reading of the Bible, because all of their straw man arguments fall apart otherwise. Um, and so they, they really want, you know, they, they, there's an assumption on, on both ends of the spectrum that if you don't believe uh, that the world was created in a literal um, six days, and if you don't believe the world is was created in 4004 BC and all of that stuff, um, that you're not a real Christian. Uh, and that's real Christianity, and everything else is kind of counterfeit. Uh, whereas anybody who has really studied the Bible and understood the ancient culture and the way people thought, um, whether it was, you know, uh, during the, the, um, the Davidic kingdom or whether it was during the exile or whether it was in uh, Second Temple Judaism or first century uh, uh, Judaism, the, the culture that, that Jesus grew up in, you know, these people did not think in those terms. They didn't, they, they understood poetry when they heard it. And they understood metaphor when they heard it. And they, they could pile metaphor upon metaphor. Paul was a, a master at doing that. Um, but I, I think the thing that really appeals to me about N.T. Wright is that he gives people, um, he doesn't just say that the traditional heaven-hell Christianity is a misreading of the Bible. He tells you what the message of the Bible is. And rather than saying, you know, the Bible is uh, a mass of contradictions, it's a, it's a conversation, it's an argument uh, where there's tremendous amount of disagreement, which I happen to believe, he says, this is the meta-narrative, this is the big story. And he takes you back to creation and he walks you through it, um, sort of giving an alternative to the old... Um, uh, for spiritual laws idea of, you, you know, you start off in, in this uh, Edenic um, paradise and then there's a fall with Adam and Eve and nothing really happens until Jesus dies on the cross and then, then you're saved. Uh, he, you know, he gives a much more compelling story, which is very true to the biblical narrative. Um, he leaves a lot of stuff out. Uh, that's, I think, the downside of it. He doesn't really talk about Joshua and Judges and, and the conquest and all that stuff. Uh, he doesn't talk about Ezra and Nehemiah too much with the exclusion of the Gentiles or forcing uh, men to divorce their non-Jewish wives, etc. Uh, you know, um, but N.T. Wright just focuses on the elements of a coherent story. Um, and he talks about the fact that God called... Uh, that, that after Adam and Eve, who represent you and me, um, turn to idolatry and worship the creator, or excuse me, worship creation or the creature rather than, than the creator, um, and um, became miserable and basically messed up um, paradise and turned away from their vocation of tending for, for paradise and, and caring for God's creation, um, they were jettisoned from paradise. Um, and things sort of rapidly went downhill. And then God calls Abraham uh, to not just uh, to get things back on track for his family or for um, what would be eventually become Israel, but he wanted Abraham to be the savior and, and Abraham's children uh, to be the agent or the the instrument of salvation for the entire world and that's very clear in the book of genesis um and then he follows that through um 
uh, with the the um, re-entry back into the promised land or back back into paradise with with the conquest. That's sort of the way he he um, interprets that. Uh, and then once again, uh, people mess up. You know, the the uh, the ambulance that is sent to to rescue humanity ends up stuck in the ditch, and and you get the Babylonian um, captivity, uh, and you see the the Ezekiel's vision of God lifting up uh, like this great chariot with the wheels within wheels, and and the cherubim and everything uh, leaving leaving Jerusalem, leaving the temple, and never coming back. The glory that, that filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it uh, never returned to the temple. Uh, the little temple that was built um, uh, with by Zerubbabel and, and his heirs, or the magnificent temple that was built by Herod um, in the, in the t- time of Jesus. Neither of those temples were really filled with the glory of God. Um, and so Jesus realized that he was the temple. He was the meeting place uh, between heaven and earth, um, where the kingdom of heaven and, and the kingdom kingdoms of this world meet. And so he uh, preached the kingdom of God, and he lived the kingdom of God, and he taught the kingdom of God in parable and with it by his example, by reaching out to, to everybody and and basically turning his movement, uh, into um, a celebration party that welcomed everybody. Um, and that drove him to his cross. That put him in conflict with not just with the religious leaders, but also um, with the Roman leaders. Because if Jesus became Lord, if Jesus was Messiah, then, then Caesar was not. And so Jesus dies on the cross, um, and he has this kind of uh, what Gustavo Alain used to call the the Christus Victor uh, atonement, uh, where Jesus took all of uh, the powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places on his shoulder, all the sin of the world, both individual sins and corporate sins, systemic evil, um, the demonic powers, all did their worst to crush Jesus. And then with his resurrection, um, then you have the victory over death and you have um, the full flowering of the kingdom of God, and it is our job as the church to live out that victory and to make it real. Um, and so all of these pieces fit together very beautifully in his narrative. Now, you could say there's a lot of bits of the Bible that don't fit into that, and that's, I think, where Peter Enns comes along and, and talks about some of the disjunctions within the Scripture. Right. Uh, but but I think for for a good pastoral theology, a good preaching theology, uh, right really brings the right elements to the table, um, pun not intended. I agree. And I think what you mentioned from the very beginning, I've always said that it seems like uh, there is a, a, a penchant for pastors to think the world started after the fall in Genesis 3. They forget the first two chapters that God created things and said they were good and he was pleased and all these things. And he never recanted that particularly. There were places, obviously, you could talk about where, you know, but uh, and back to the hell thing, too. The mm-hmm. thing, the One of the most interesting uh, comments that I heard was a number of years ago, this young man who was addict and alcoholic, and we were talking, and he was, he'd walked an aisle at a church, and we were talking about it, and he, he was still having problems. He had some court dates. He had debts. His family had left him. His, his question was probably the most apropos to that whole approach. He said, well, 
if it's just about going to heaven and I'm going to heaven now, why don't I just kill myself? That's right. I mean, that was the, the logical question is if it's all that's all it's about, then once you've made that decision, what are we sitting around here waiting for a train for, you know? That's right. And, and that kind of logic can work in reverse. Uh, my experience uh, doing criminal justice reform work um, since 1999 has really convinced me that especially in the South, uh, especially in the Bible Belt, uh, prison sort of becomes a down payment on hell. And the, the other kind, the reverse logic of what you just mentioned applies. People think, well, you know, if this guy is a druggie and, you know, he's on the side of Satan and he's going to spend eternity in hell, uh, you know, if God is sort of ready to pitch the guy into the lake of fire, then why don't we just throw him, throw him away and, and uh, let him rot in prison? You know, the, if God is going to tor torture this guy um, forever in, in hell, Right. then sending him to prison isn't so bad. And so um, a prison sentence of 30 or 40 years for a simple drug transaction, which in most parts of the world would sound incredibly draconian, starts to make sense. It's, it's no big deal. Um, and, and so you, you get a lot of those dynamics working out. And it's not surprising to me, as Shane Claiborne has uh, said uh, when, he was, when he was here uh, uh, at Broadway Baptist Church, the church I attend, um, he, he pointed out that the same uh, churches that are big on hell uh, are also uh, staunch supporters of capital punishment. Uh, and the same thing goes with mass incarceration. Um, and if you, if you take a map of where most of the executions in America have taken place and you superimpose it over a map of where most of the lynchings took place um, between the late 19th century and, say, 1950, uh, it looks almost exactly the same. The places that were big on lynching are big on capital punishment. And I don't think that's a, a coincidence. No, I don't think so either. I, he, I had him on the podcast last fall, and he was talking about his new book. And the and one of the other things that, I, that Shane and I didn't talk so much about, but I wonder if your experience has borne out that it seems that on the front lines of almost all the work for the poor and the oppressed are two groups. you got progressive liberals and Christians. And yet those two groups rarely seem to have any sort of coalition to get things done together. No, well, it, it's there, there are problems. Part of the problem, I think, is that um, in my experience, a lot of progressive Christians, um, especially if they are post-evangelical, are much better at telling you what's wrong with fundamentalism than answering the question, who is Jesus for you, or how do you understand salvation, or what what do you think is going to happen after after we die, or what does the kingdom of God mean to you? They they aren't comfortable being constructive. They are simply um, uh, we tend to be focused on critiquing fundamentalism, and we're very sophisticated at very very subtle. Our arguments uh, are very incisive and compelling especially if you've run afoul of, of fundamentalism. Um, but the question is, well, what are you guys about? What are you doing? You know, what, what's your vision? What, what, what sets your heart on fire? Um, they were not so good. We don't, in fact, a lot of people, I found it very interesting in the church I attend. Uh, I was talking to a woman and she had 
a Sunday school class. It was primarily women, perhaps exclusively women, I don't know. And these women, women would have been in the 40 to 60 range, most of them. And she asked the question and she said, I want you to give me your gut reaction. When I use the word the cross or the phrase the cross, what's your reaction? And it was almost exclusively negative. Uh, because all people could associate with the cross was uh, what Frank Stagg used to call butcher house theology. Um, and they didn't, or slaughterhouse theology, they didn't want to go back to those old um, revivals that they remembered from their childhood where people um, did the ticking clock thing and talked about going to hell and everything hangs in the balance and, and Jesus died on the cross to save your sins and the blood of Christ, um, you know, uh, was shed for you and, and, you know, come to the front and give your heart to Jesus. Now, all those associations brought up really intensively, intensely negative feelings for them and they didn't have an alternative way of understanding the cross or the blood of Christ or any of these other um, expressions which are central to the biblical message. And it's it's really, um, you know, this is sort of ground zero kind of rhetoric from a biblical perspective. If you can't use that language, if it, if it doesn't sound like good news to you, then there's a problem, you know. And, and for a lot of us, all we can think of is the way those terms have been misused and abused and misapplied by certain people that have um, traumatized us in the past. We haven't embraced them and said, well, what did they mean for us? What was Paul really talking about? And that's the thing that I think that uh, N.T. Wright is so helpful with, especially for young people who are just starting out who haven't gone through all this garbage that people from our generation went through. Um he just sort of says, this is the way it is. This is what the Bible says, and it's very simple. And um, I think a lot of folks, when I, when I heard N.T. Wright speak here in Dallas, if he had given an altar call, which is the last thing N.T. Wright as an Anglican is going to do, but if he had given one, uh, I bet 100 people would have come forward um, because he has that kind of, of impact and he inspires that kind of conf confidence. It's It's almost like it's a... A, a new kind of re revivalism um, that is, is just as challenging and just as focused on Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and all of that those old um, phrases and expressions and and uh, metaphors that that are so important to us. But he's he's redefining everything in a very positive and beautiful and I think biblical way, and um, people respond. And he's, it, connect, it, he's connecting them to action as well. That's right. And I think that's right. the thing that you were talking about young people that don't have the baggage. Well, not only do they not have the baggage, if they don't see any of the social action, it's not the, the, the I've mentioned this several times before, but they don't look at atheism. They look at irrelevance. They don't, they don't care whether they believe in God or not. It's just irrelevant because it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. And yet, like right. I said a while ago, the, the the people I have seen, I ask the same question you ask when people, even in this current political, you know, melee we got going on, I just ask people, what are you doing in your community to make life better for other people? And what are you doing personally? But what I, the people I do see who are doing the work quietly that no one else wants to do tend to be um, 
progressive liberals or Christians. I don't, and, and, but not often are they working together. They're sort of both doing it and they're suspicious right. of each other. Well, one, you know, for instance, when I published or put a link uh, to my piece on N.T. Wright on Facebook, and I got a lot of liberals um, on Facebook, uh, the primary response was, uh, well, isn't he a fundamentalist? Uh, doesn't he oppress homosexuals with his conservative view on, on gay rights? Um, you know, and this sort of thing. Uh, they, they couldn't there was no nuance in their response to right whatsoever. He, he, because he wasn't a liberal, uh, because he has a high view of biblical authority and what have you, he immediately had to be in the other camp. And, and they, there were only two groups. You were either a progressive or you were a fundamentalist. And because he wasn't a progressive in the way they defined that, uh, then he had to be the other. Um, or he certainly and, doesn't fit. If you talk to those people, they don't want to have anything to do with him. I mean, no, no. yeah, yeah, and that's okay. Uh, but when when you talk to a lot, uh, and my wife is um, uh, uh, political. She's starting to. She ran for Texas Board of Education, um, which is dominated by people who, um, like David Barton, um, want to bring God back into the classroom and want to ban the teaching of evolution and all this stuff. Uh, so she ran for that unsuccessfully, and then in the last election, she ran for the state house uh, and was defeated. Um, and but because there has been such a resurgence of interest, um, she has uh, decided she she's going to put her hat in the ring again. Uh, but I so I hang out with a lot of of white liberal Democrat types, and a lot of them, you know. Religion is all of a piece. The only religion they really know is the religious right. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're vaguely aware of the Pope and what have you, but that's, other than the Pope, that's about the only, you know, progressive religious figure they know. Um, and they really do not like religion. Uh, a lot of them have um, read a lot of Dawkins and, and these other folks, and and they 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 just really envision a world where secularists and liberals and they tend to uh, they tend to um, see those two as as complementary categories uh, are in charge and all of the the haters and the fundamentalists and and the bigots um, are silenced and so it's a very very manichaean black and white kind of mentality very much the same sort of thing that that you find um, in fundamentalist circles um, and that kind of breaks my heart. But again, by the time you get to our age, you realize it's a fool's game trying to get anybody to change their mind when they're when they're set in the ways. All you can really do is reach out to people who are still in the formative stage, young folks. Right. And um, they're the salvation. They're the future. But I've just tried. I mean, I'm like you. I've tried to point out to, and I don't like the word secular, but secular, secular liberals to point out that you guys and the Christians are the only ones out here trying to take care of the orphans and feed the poor and stand up for justice, and yet you won't meet together. You know, I know you disagree on some things, but those would be a pretty powerful coalition if you, you came before particularly some bodies with pastors and Christians on one side and political liberals on the other, because it'd be a pretty pretty broad spectrum of people. It just seems 
interesting that that, that coalition has been really slow to develop. I know yeah. dogma plays a part of it on both sides of the fence there, but yeah, uh, that's right. Well, have you had much support from churches or pastors or church leaders for Friends of Justice? I mean, do you, have you guys been supported? Well, um, if you, I have done a lot of presentations in various kinds of churches. Um, if you talk to to black churches, um, most African Americans have had enough experience with the criminal justice system, either personally or um, having watched a, a, fam a family member get in trouble with the law and not be treated justly, um, or just noticing what is happening in their own neighborhoods, uh, that when you talk about what happened in Tulia or what happened in, in Gina, Louisiana, or what happened in Church Point, Louisiana, or what happened in Winona, Mississippi, one of the cases I'm still working on, um, they get it. I mean, you don't have to spell it out. Uh, there are two steps ahead of you. If you make that same presentation in a white church, and it can be a very progressive white church um, uh, with a lot of educated people who have taken courses in the humanities and all sorts of stuff, um, you get a polite response, but it makes folks feel uncomfortable. Um, They've never really thought about this. Um, the idea that uh, America is radically unjust in its dealing with um, our poorer folk, especially those of color, uh, strikes them as counterintuitive, um, and they, they don't really want to be identified with any kind of a movement or a perspective that would be really gung-ho in that direction. They, they, they want to nuance everything. Uh, they want to water everything down. They, they want to always be the devil's advocate. Um, and I, I really feel that um, for, for people who live in the suburbs, especially people who are uh, middle-class to upper-middle-class white, white people in the South, it is really hard uh, to get the problems in the criminal justice system and uh, or the immigration system, for instance. Um, and and so it's not that they disagree with you. It just the whole subject makes them uncomfortable and they get tight and they go quiet. Um, that's true for high school kids. It's true for um, older folks. Um, and I, I really find it that has happened over and over again. And so uh, I really don't know how you get beyond that. But uh, you, you, if you're going to get uh, white liberals involved in real, honest-to-goodness uh, justice advocacy work, um, you really have to get them in touch with the black church. And our churches are so segregated. And they aren't just segregated because white people tend to worship with white people and black people with black people and Latinos with Latinos. Um, we're also segregated in terms of our life experience, what what we encounter on a regular uh, basis in our own communities, what we see. Um, we don't live in the same world. We don't live in the same America. And so um, I, I've really wrestled with this. How, how can you get people to sit down and talk together? Um, where is the where is the meeting point? 
and uh, and that's a that's a real challenging issue for me. I understand in the current political environment, really, the sitting quietly by may not be the option it was two years ago because uh, certainly the the far right is not sitting quietly by. I mean, they're they're buying hook, line, and sinker. You know, the 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 messaging on immigration, the messaging even on uh, changing some of the things about people's sexual orientation and other things. There seem to be there doesn't seem to be any sort of hesitation or anything now for people to just scream as loud as they can about all that stuff. That's right. Uh, and the only thing liberals seem to be able to scream loudly about are things like gay rights, um, uh, abortion rights. Um, and when you move beyond that, things get a little tense. Um, it's very difficult, for instance, to swing the Democratic Party um, behind the issue of justice for for immigrants, for the undocumented, um, to to really call for radical and compassionate immigration reform um, that is rooted in the biblical principles of welcoming the stranger. Um, it was interesting a few years ago. Um, sojourners and, and a few other um, folks were able to get several um, prominent evangelical leaders, Richard Land was one of them, um, to participate in this move for immigration reform. And everything was going along just fine until the election started and then everything just fell apart. Uh, Trump's, Trump's call for we're going to build a wall uh, was so compelling for so many people um, that on the right, that became the only position that you could maintain and, and the whole movement fell apart. So it, it's, a, it's a toughie. And the Democratic Party, like you said, that they've forgotten the roots. I mean, it was a, a white oh. Democrat that was able to get the civil rights legislation through when no one else could. Uh, That's right. And that, that kind of thing. Moving to a little different, what, I want to shift gears a little bit. How, how has your view of Scripture changed over the years, Alan? Well, um, I was, because I, I grew up in Canada, I was never really um, introduced to a, a hardcore fundamentalist approach to Scripture. Um, the first pastor that I was aware of uh, was a guy named Ray Price, who was a British Baptist, uh, who was, you know, I think probably fairly liberal. He was a big fan of C.S. Lewis um, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he dropped these names, and, and I didn't know who these people were at the time, of course. Um, and then the pastor after that um, had been a Wycliffe translator on tr a little island, uh, uh, Indian village, and we called them Indians at the time. Now we call them, in, in Canada, we call them First Nations. Uh, a little uh, Indian fishing village on Trout Rock, which was a little island in Great Slave Lake. And there were just a few hundred people who spoke dog rib. And uh, Bill and June Davidson uh, came in as Wycliffe translators and created a, a written dog rib language that, where there hadn't been one before, and then translated the Bible into that written language and then taught people to read that language so they could read the Bible in their own language, which struck me as kind of strange at the time. But... Um, and then uh, when they finished that, they came and they were the pastor of our church in Yellowknife. And then when we moved down to Edmonton, 
he was the pastor of the church we moved to there, and he had was going back to school, going to the University of Alberta, taking courses in theology. Uh, he was growing and and pretty open, and so I never really, until um, I got into the ministry, I, I never really encountered hardcore fundamentalism, um, and so. When you ask how my theology has changed, uh, I don't really think I was given a theology. I, I really, the heaven-hell thing wasn't a big deal. Um, when I was seven years old, I woke up one morning and I was convinced that I was going to hell if I didn't get baptized. So I told my mother I wanted to get baptized. And since I was probably, like I say, seven or eight, that was about the age you're supposed to get baptized. Um, in uh, Baptist circles. So she took me to the pastor, and he sat me down. This was Ray Price, the, the British guy. And he said, uh, so, young man, um, why do you want to get baptized? And I said, I don't want to go to hell. And he said, well, if that's all you're worried about, I wouldn't worry about it too much. And I said, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, you if the you're certainly not in the South. I can <laughs> That's right. If the preacher didn't think I should worry about it, I, I guess I didn't have anything to worry about since he was God's man. I didn't get baptized until I was 20 because uh, I was waiting for this Damascus Road experience. It never happened. I'm just not a Damascus Road kind of guy. And so our, our pastor, who was from Texas, uh, brought up a revivalist. And this is the first time I'd ever been to a revival in our church named Carlos Gruber, who played the violin badly and spoke with a thick Austrian accent. And um, and he did the old-time Southern Baptist thing. And I came forward just because it was about time. I thought, I love Jesus. I want to live my life for him. So I got baptized when I was 20. I was already in university. Um, and uh, so that was kind of interesting. And then I went to the Baptist Leadership Training School and, um, and then I went to the University of Alberta. The University of Alberta at the time was a, a bastion of, especially in the humanities, um, in, if you took a course in history or philosophy or sociology or psychology, most of the professors I had were, were, universe, uh, were Oxford University grads, and, and most of them were socialists. This is back in the early 70s. Um, and so by the time I got down to Southern Seminary, it was such a breath of fresh air just not to be surrounded by this kind of not anti-religious world, but but my university years were, were very in a very secular uh, kind of uh, enlightenment atmosphere where religion didn't really have a serious role to play. Um, and so the kind of conservatism that I found at Southern was a breath of fresh air for me. Um, and then I, I went back to the churches, and my wife and I were both ordained, or at least that was to be the idea. We got up to Canada, and uh, we went to this church in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and uh, when it came time for us to be ordained, the church told us that they had just been kidding about that, that they really... They wanted to ordain me, but but not Nancy, and that was that was a wake up call. They 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 said, well, we told you that because we didn't think you'd come if if uh, so. We we told you we wanted to ordain both of you and have both of you as our pastors, but we really didn't mean it. And that was a real slap in the face. But I really don't think at that point that I 
had I, I, I was being forced to create my own theology um, and a lot of what I believed came right out of the seminary classes that I took um, when I was in Sunday school I don't think I ever learned anything I didn't learn how to read the Bible uh, I didn't understand the history of the Bible I didn't understand um, the chronology of how everything fit together um, and so I was, I was really being forced to put all this stuff together uh, by myself. And um, I soon realized that the way I was talking about the Bible and the way the people in the pews were thinking about the Bible was, was very different. Because although I was shielded from fundamentalism, most of the people in these small towns I was ministering in had not been so fortunate. And... Um, in every church I was in, there was at least uh, one guy who had been to one of these little Bible schools, which were ultra-fundamentalist, um, on the prairies of, of Canada. And uh, and they were dispensationalists, and I had never really encountered dispensationalism before, had to wrestle with that, um, and did a lot of reading about it. Um, and they believed in uh, heaven and hell Christianity, and they wanted me to preach that. And when I didn't preach that, uh, they were very uncomfortable. And I, I, I don't know, I didn't know what to do about that because I was encountering things like dispensationalism, the idea that you know Jesus was coming back any day uh, to take his people back to heaven and then the tribulation would come and they had all of these timelines worked out. I didn't know anything about that, so I had to start studying about it. Um, and they had these, these theories of the atonement, um, which were very much along the lines that N.T. Wright is critiquing. Um, that God had set a very impossibly high moral test for humanity. We had all flunked. God was mad as hell about it, was wanting to fry us all. But Jesus sort of somehow uh, presented himself as an innocent sacrifice, and that seemed to appease God, so the rest of us get off. Um, and that just struck me as bizarre you know i i had they didn't talk about that at seminary my preachers had never talked about that when i was growing up so i was encountering all this stuff kind of for the first time and so uh from my early 20s i've sort of been trying to uh i was rocked back on my heels to be honest and i i've been trying to piece together um a working theology that is both biblically um rooted uh, but that also makes sense of life and doesn't force me to, to check my brain at the door. And I, I think now that I'm 64, I'm starting to feel like the like the puzzle pieces are clicking into place. But I've never really felt that until now. Well, we've talked kind of talked a lot about it. What do you believe about hell? Do you believe in literal hell? If so, you know, what do you think it is? I believe in judgment. Um, I, I really think it's important that evil um, be exposed and, and that people who are complicit in evil uh, are made accountable. Um, and probably the best story, uh, the best parable that Jesus told, and, and almost everything that we know about hell, all the tables and chairs of hell, uh, to use Helmut Thielicke's uh, phrase, uh, are taken from the parables of Jesus. Um, 
in one parable, it isn't usually seen as a as a hell parable, but is the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the prodigal comes home, and he comes home basically because he doesn't know where else to go. Uh, he doesn't come from any high moral uh, purpose. He just realizes that things were better back in his dad's home, and, and he's starving to death, so he might as well swallow his pride and go home. The father embraces him with rapture and with love and compassion and joy. He's thrilled to have the kid back. No excuses, doesn't want to hear the kid's excuses. And then the elder brother, which is you and me, comes out from the fields. He's been working hard, sweat running down his face. He's beat. And he hears the songs and the dancing and the music and the hilarity coming from inside the house. And he is told by a servant that... Your brother came home, and they've killed the fatted calf, and they're having a big celebration. And the elder brother refuses to go inside. Uh, and so the father comes out and remonstrates with him and says, you know, this is my kid, my flesh and blood. You know, he, he was lost, and now he's found. Uh, how could I not have a celebration? And Jesus doesn't tell us how that little exchange was resolved. He just leaves it hanging. But my guess is, the implication is that the, the father came back to join the party and left the elder brother in the outer darkness where men shall weep and gnash their teeth. Um, and that is what hell is about, the natural consequences of turning our back on the kingdom of God and saying, no, I don't want to join the party. I don't want to be part of that. Um, because to do that, I would have to swallow my pride. I would have to realize that I'm as much of a loser and a sinner and a broken person as anybody else, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to maintain my superiority in, regardless of what my daddy thinks. And if you believe that God is infinite compassion, then that's a problem, you know. And I, I think that God has, uh, in his love for us allows the natural consequences of our hardness of heart to play itself out. Um, and I, I, I am not dogmatic about hell being a place. I kind of like C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Right, I knew you were headed that direction, yeah. And I also like the Eastern Orthodox idea. And this is not that all the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox think this way, but it's, it's an option within that tradition, uh, is that when you die and you come into the presence of the blinding glory of God, if your heart is full of love, um, then that is heaven. Uh, but if your heart has been hardened, then it feels like hell. And you either, you know, and, and that gets, gets us back to, uh, to John's gospel where he says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. And if people love darkness rather than light, what are you going to do if you're God? I don't know. And I'll, I'll leave it to God. It's not my call. But I, I really don't think that, that, that hell is um, a place uh, of eternal conscious torment um, because that you, you can't believe that God would toss people into a hell like that, um, you know, C.S. Lewis says that, that the doors of hell are bolted from the inside or locked from the inside. Um, but he's using metaphor, you know. He, he's, he's using uh, the language of symbol, and he knows it. And 
one thing that N.T. Wright says is when, when you talk about what happens after death or you talk about the coming kingdom of God, uh, when, when, when God brings earth and heaven together, uh, you're, 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 you've got a signpost pointing off into the fog, uh, and you don't know exactly where that signpost is, is heading. Um, these metaphors and these symbols that, and these pictures uh, that the Bible gives us, but they're pointing somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think we can nail these things down too much. But, but, but the decisions that we make in this world have consequences. And so I believe in judgment and I believe in justice. Judgment is justice. Uh, in in Greek, the you know dikaiosunai the, the, uh, means both uh, uh, righteousness and justice, um, and so um, I, I don't think that that we are consigned to hell because we didn't say pray the sinner's prayer, and we aren't consigned to hell because we didn't leave, live good enough lives. Uh, we are consigned to hell because we do not want to come to the party that Jesus is throwing. And that's about as simple as it gets. Yeah, I think I, I'm with you. As I've aged, I, I've had to really kind of chew on that. I mean, the idea of eternal punishment that is sort of taught in some of the circles we've been discussing here for temporal crime just seems very strange. I mean, it would be like you're, the equivalent of what you're doing in your your ministry and Friends of Justice, somebody getting 15 years for simple possession of weed, you know? It, it, yeah. What if they got life? You know, it's just it's just kind of crazy. And even that's not eternity. Um, so I, I think, but the other thing too, I keep coming back to the the, the deep, just really deep rivet of, of reconciliation that runs all the way through scripture. And Jesus even, I mean, it's even said, I will reconcile all things unto myself. You know, everything's going to be reconciled. How he does it and what the, the mechanism of that is, is certainly above my pay grade. But uh, Yeah, and that, that's the biblical vision. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Um, and then, you know, uh, Jesus delivers the kingdom to his father so that God will be all in all. I mean, what does that mean? I don't think Paul knew exactly what it meant. It just meant that uh, that the ultimate vision for reality is that God is going to bring heaven and earth together. And that's why we pray um, that, uh, you know, in the Lord's prayer, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, That isn't just an an anomaly. That's central to the message that Jesus was preaching. And one of the things, again, getting back to N.T. Wright, that I like about his theology is he has the guts to butt to bite the eschatological bullet and to talk about the fact that one day, um, and he's talking about life after life after death, uh, that heaven is important, he says, but it's not the end of the world. The end of the world is when God brings heaven and earth together and we get our resurrection bodies, which we will not get until we all get them together. Uh, Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep Heaven is a kind of waking sleep. It, it's 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 disembodied. It's conscious. It's it's restful. It's beautiful, uh, but it's not the ultimate reality. And you know, it's very difficult for sons and daughters of the Enlightenment, like we are, to really buy into that thinking because it sounds so supernatural and so unscientific and so uh, naive. Uh, but that is the biblical vision, and I think it all boils down to the fact uh, that 
we've got to live, leave the particulars to God, but the Bible says that's where we're headed. It says that in the prophets. Jesus picked that up. Paul says it, and Revelation brings that uh, to a beautiful um, conclusion with this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down uh, out of heaven to earth. And so the ultimate vision um, is an earthly reality. And we, we can't put all, all of the pieces together and know exactly how it looks. And if you try to picture it literally, it just, it just seems silly. Um, but I don't think the ultimate reality will be silly. Um, I, I don't think that it's nothing because we can't picture it doesn't mean that it isn't real. Um, but the point that I think Wright makes is the goal is not to believe certain things about the end times. The, the, the goal is to say, because that's where creation is headed, because that's going to be the conclusion of the game, I want to be moving in that direction. I want to be not building the kingdom uh, in my own power, but cooperating with God, being used by God as an instrument to build the kingdom. And, you know, uh, when we do that and just leave leave the end result to God, um, then that makes the church, that gives the church its marching orders, it gives the church its proper shape, and um, and it's it's a a beautiful if not completely mysterious uh, vision that, that sort of keeps us going. I'm glad you used those words because I do think we are a culture that. Uh, wants to demysticize everything. We, we were not comfortable with mystery or with uh, things that other, particularly the Old Testament, that would have been much more comfortable with not knowing everything and figuring things out and with the mystery of it. And uh, we, we just, the next couple of questions, because I, I don't want to keep you forever here. I haven't really enjoyed your conversation, but I've asked these, these things to everybody. Uh, who is Jesus? Jesus is the human face of God. Um, people, you know, the big question when I was in seminary was, is Jesus God? Um, and then of course you get into all kinds of Trinitarian arguments about how he is and isn't related to God and and um, how he's co-equal with God, but not the same as God identified, you know, you go back and forth. Um, but I don't, for me, that's never been the big question. The, the big question is not, is Jesus God? The big question is, is God like Jesus? And I'm betting everything that he is. And um, so um, you, you, can, you can understand the character and the nature of God in many ways. And you can look at certain parts of the Bible, like the conquest of Israel, where God picks favorites and he fights for his people and he uh, encourages them to slaughter their enemies. And you could come to the conclusion that God is an imperial God, uh, and that uh, God picks favorites. And if you go in that direction, then you're thinking, okay, America first, uh, we are the chosen people, we are a Christian country, we are God's chosen people, we are a city set upon a hill. And uh, if we get into a conflict with any other country, God is going to be on our side. And our side will be righteous simply because by virtue of who we are as God's chosen people. You know, that, that kind of thinking. Uh, how we think about God in, really affects everything. And But if we go with Jesus, then God is infinite mercy, infinite love, 
infinite forgiveness uh, and infinite beauty. And, and that's the kind of God that I choose to believe. And so I filter everything through um, a Jesus lens. Um, and for me, Jesus is the one who tells me what ultimate reality looks like. Um, and so for me, Jesus is the human face of God. The next question, what is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Hmm. Well, I don't know what the kindest thing, probably the kindest thing anybody's ever done for me was when my wife married me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, I've been, uh, to pay the bills, I did Friends of Justice um, as basically a grant-based um, outreach for 15 years. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. So we had a lot of lean years. And as I got into my 60s, I started to think that I needed a, I needed a day job, uh, a paying gig. So I've been working as a um, hospice chaplain uh, for the last three years. Um, at first it was part-time and now it's full-time. And just last week, I was in the interest of protecting uh, the um, privacy of the patient. I, I can't. I can't just give you the person's name. I can't even describe who this person is. But just in very general terms, this is a guy who has had a difficult life um, and is now probably about four hundred pounds and and confined to a wheelchair and he can't get up and and he can't get to the bathroom anymore and he's just really riddled with cancer it's metastasized almost everywhere and he's just miserable and he called the office the other day we don't give patients our private numbers because they can sometimes take advantage of that but he called the office and somebody from the office called me and so i i called the guy and he said you know could you come over so i came over and i i spent an hour just talking to him and he told me his situation and I said you know you ought to be depressed because your situation is objectively depressing but you know um, God loves you and uh, God has better things for you than what you're going through now and so I would ask you just to hang on and to even though you don't know how God can make something beautiful out of this just believe that he's going to do it. And uh, and then I got, I read him some scripture and I was ready to pray. And he said, can I pray for you? Wow. And I, and, <laughs> and he thanked God for bringing me to talk to him. And uh, in three years, nobody had ever done that. And I thought, wow, there, there's, there's some gospel in there somewhere. You know, when when you, you, you're seeing yourself as the preacher and you're trying to do the right thing and say the right thing, uh, and then the person you're ministering to, out of their misery, prays for you as if you aren't just uh, fulfilling a, a function as a pastor, but that you're a real person who needs prayer, um, that you're standing in the need of prayer just as much as he is. That really, that really touched me. So that's something recent uh, that Man. somebody's done for me, and, and that that's what comes to mind. Well, you know, Alan, as we used to say, that'll preach right there. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> uh, I guess now just remind people again about where they can find out more about uh, Friends for Justice and, you know, how they can, uh, you know, maybe replicate this in their own communities, what kind of things they should be watching for and 
Yeah, uh, well, Friends of Justice, um, you can you can find our blog um, at uh, friendsofjustice.net. Um, just Google Alan Bean, comma, Friends of Justice, and all my stuff will come up. Um, I also have been writing a monthly column for Baptist News Global, which is where the, the N.T. Wright piece was was published. And, and so all the stuff I've written there is also available. I have dealt with some of the, the topics that we've been touching on tonight in mind-numbing detail, I'm afraid, uh, in some of the posts I've written over the years. And, and so uh, if you're interested in learning more about um, some of the things we've been talking about tonight, you can just go to the site and um, uh, just just scroll down through some of the stuff I've written, and, and you'll get a pretty good idea of where I'm, where I'm coming from. Right now, um, we've been working on a case in Winona, Mississippi. It's a murder case. It goes back to 1996. A guy named Curtis Flowers, and um, uh, the case is really about the manipulation of eyewitness testimony. Um, Four people were killed in cold blood in a furniture store in this little town. It's the same town where Fannie Lou Hamer and several other civil rights movement uh, leaders were uh, beaten within an inch of their lives back in 1963 uh, when they, they insisted on eating at the white-only counter uh, at the bus station in Winona. And they were taken to the county courthouse and, and just beat up. Um, and... Uh, and so the question I've been asking is, um, how much has changed since 1963 when that happened, or 1966, uh, where Martin Luther King came to Winona and was attacked by a, a white barber wielding his uh, his um, uh, razor, um, and you know they the guy just about got to, to Martin Luther King, and they just. Uh, got him at the last second, you know, that kind of passion, that kind of of never in a thousand years segregation, uh, white supremacy, um, segregation now, segregation for kind of uh, mind. How much changed between, say, 1966 and 1996 when, when Curtis was arrested? Uh, Curtis Flowers is a guy... Uh, IQ of not 72. Um, he is a gospel singer, uh, a beautiful soul. Uh, he's in Parchman Prison, has been locked up for years now, uh, for half of his life. Um, and um, I was just out to Mississippi last week. Um, the Stars Channel is going to be doing a, um, a documentary on this case, and we've got some wonderful... Uh, pro bono attorneys who have been assigned to the case, and uh, the Mississippi Innocence Project has gotten involved. We've been talking to them for four years, and they've gotten involved. Um, and some really wonderful, exciting developments have taken place in the case that I think are going to blow it out of the water. It's It's been uh, the Supreme Court has recently ruled that they want the Mississippi Supreme Court to look at the case again. And I can't go into detail because either I spend the next two hours explaining the case to you. Uh, so, But but if you want to learn about it, uh, just just Google Curtis Flowers, Friends of Justice, and uh, and you know, um, all of the blogging that I've been doing uh, over the 
years um, is there. And I write this stuff not so much for the, the average uh, reader, but I write it for journalists. I, I write it for attorneys. Um, I, I want to lay out all of the argument. And that's sort of what Friends of Justice has done. We come in and we, we tell the story. Not the way a lawyer would tell it necessarily. We we try to tell, sort of give a, a thick description of what's going on. We interview the family. We look at the the history around the case, the racial history, um, and sort of just tell the story deep and wide, uh, and and try to draw attention to it. And so that's sort of what we've been doing, and it's a difficult process. Um, I think our our to bear fruit, as it has in, in other places. We've seen some miracles happen. We've seen the prison bars open and innocent people walk free in Tulia and in, in Gina and in Church Point, Louisiana. And I think it's going to happen in Wyoming. That's wonderful. Well, Alan, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's always good to talk to somebody else who's of the same tribe. And I, I really appreciate all the work you've done and are continuing to do for justice. And I hope folks will check out what you're doing. I look forward to seeing that documentary on STARS. And certainly we'll keep you in prayers from this end. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing this podcast. Um, uh, as I drive around uh, from visit to visit, I have spent a lot of time in the car. And so I've had the chance this last week to listen to almost every interview you've done. And I think you're doing a, a really wonderful service um, uh, to people like myself um, to realize that I'm not the only one out there, that other people are wrestling with this stuff and coming to very similar conclusions, and that a consensus, a rough and ready consensus, a kingdom consensus is coming into shape, and we're moving in the right direction, and some exciting things are going to happen down the road. I really do believe that. Well, I appreciate that, and that's why I started this. I needed to hear those voices to encourage me, and I think we have to kind of preach the gospel to ourselves sometimes and hear other people kind of echo it. So I really do appreciate you taking time to talk to me. And looking for, I'll look forward to talking to you again. Maybe we'll follow up after the stars thing and chat it up again sometime. That'd be wonderful. Thanks, Alan. You have a good night, man. God bless you. Martin Luther said, when we preach the truth, the dogs begin to bark. And uh, if you were listening to our entire podcast there, you heard the dogs barking at Alan. Actually, the dog was barking here. My dog was barking as well. So whatever it was from uh, across the country here uh, and across Skype, the dogs were barking because the truth was being discussed. And if you're a friend of justice, and Alan is, and his name is just a name, but what he does proves that he is a friend of justice. Uh, he is looking out for, as I said at the beginning, the least of these. He is doing this because... God has put it in his heart, and he has a compassion for those who um, don't have anywhere else to turn to find justice. And at the core of his burning desire to do this is his his call of God and his, his love for God and his faith. And he has hope because there is faith, and he has seen uh, some amazing things. And if you, you want to check out his website, uh, you can find out more the Friends of Justice website. You can find out more about his work and the people they have helped and the people they're still trying to help. You can also support him. You can make donations there. And also look look up some of his uh, writings on, on Google. You can He writes a regular column and he does a blog some. And the, the piece, particularly the piece on N.T. Wright, I, I would highly recommend you check that out as well as N.T. Wright's book. That's it for this week's Thinking God podcast. As always, I will, I'm glad you were here. I'm glad... Somebody's listening, and I appreciate all the kind words, and also all the, I even pr appreciate the constructive criticisms I'm getting. 
and we've got a lot of good guests lined up. So uh, I hope you'll continue to, to tune in. We are kind of going through some growing pains on our website, trying to get it up to date. But you can check us out at uh, iTunes or Google Play or uh, at our Podbean address, which is thinkinggodpodbean.com. That's thinkinggod.podbean.com. And thinkinggod.com is our website, which is being continued renovated. So I hope you'll check those places out and stay in touch. Uh, You can reach me at gwilson at thinkinggod.com with suggestions or comments. And until next time, get out and do something to make the world a better place. 